uh, and just running over us. And then we get to Christmas morning and all that has been sort of anticipating, not just for the days, but the weeks and even in some ways months. And some are even now counting down to next Christmas because it's a year-long process of anticipation. We get to Christmas morning and, and we go through our, our routine. We go through our uh, reading the Christmas uh, message. We, we go through our stockings. We open the doors where the presents are. We race in. And in 30 minutes... It's over. It's amazing. Weeks of effort. And listen, I don't shoulder the heaviest part of the burden for Christmas. That's, Mary does that far better than I. If I bought gifts for our present uh, for Christmas morning, they would not look forward to it at all. They would just have no anticipation for Christmas morning. She does a wonderful job, and so she does a lot of work, and, and then it's, it's over. And it's like a great balloon with the air letting out of it. And you finally get to that meal around midday, and then you settle. And it's an odd feeling, isn't it? I mean, if you know what I'm talking about, maybe it doesn't happen for you at the same time of the day or the same point, but all the anticipation, and then it's over, and there's this letdown. And I think, and this is just my opinion, I think that most of our reflections upon life are better anticipated and sweeter to remember than to actually go through. I think the events themselves don't deliver the way we anticipate them and the way we remember them. And I think to some jury that's a good thing because we tend to anticipate things better than they deserve and reflect upon them better than they were. But there, there is a sense where Christmas evening and the days after Christmas just hit a lull. And, and it's like, well, now what? Everything we've done has been about about that morning and or that day and how we celebrate that day. And then it's just over. Well, I think that's what New Year's is for. Because we're always looking forward, aren't we? We're just kind of wired that way. What's next? What's next? Now, some of that is really healthy. In fact, I think New Year's is a healthy anticipation of what's next. There can be an unhealthy anticipation of always wanting something more than you have, a lack of contentment. And, and that can be sinful. But there is a sense where what's next can be anticipated rightly and adjusted for well. And I hope that this message will serve towards that end. And so I've sort of given you a bait and switch here with the title, Preparing or Being Ready for Good Works in a New Year, is what I intend to speak about. But probably what comes to mind, especially this week, is the worst thing you could be thinking of to prepare for a new year. Because this is the week that we make those, those resolutions, those evil resolutions. We are going to live the perfect life in 2014. At least an area of our life that's been out of control. We're going to rein in. Uh, we are going to stop something that we shouldn't have been doing or that we want to discontinue. Uh, we're going to start something that we should have been doing. We want to add to our life. We're going to adjust something that needed some adjustment. We're going to create a new habit. We're going to get rid of an old one. There's something about the new year that brings with it a fresh reset button that we like. And I think that's a good thing. I think January 1st brings with it a sense of newness that is appropriate. You know, sometimes uh, the new year is depicted as this little baby. That is this, this, all this opportunity for the future. And of course, the end of the year is depicted as this old, broken down old man. Well, no, if you feel that way, old and broken down, 
now going into the end of the year. But certainly with January 1st, there's a sense of newness. What will I do differently next year? It often is related to exercise equipment and food. I don't know how many of you already began to think about what you're going to do differently with what you put in your body and what you do with it after you've put it in there. Or, or what you're going to uh, start spiritually, something new. We're going to read the Bible through or are going to change a, 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 a devotional strategy or, or maybe start regular devotions, which, which are new for you. There's something about a new year that gets a different start and we want to do something different with it. I remember a Christmas break about eight years ago that was about this time of the break, if I'm remembering it correctly, where there was a depression, there was a sense of, of negative that filtered into my perception. And it was less about looking forward and it was more about looking back because we had just been involved with a church plant. We'd started a new church in Maryland. That church had begun earlier that fall with a lot of anticipation toward it. We'd spent a year preparing for that first Sunday morning. We were convinced, as I think any church planter is, that Pentecost would come down again only a second time in the history of the world, and it would be at that service. And if not that, the second week it would happen. And after that fall, we began in September, by the time we got to December, you kind of looked back over the year and and all that had been done to anticipate the, the start of that new church. And there was a disappointment that it hadn't been what we thought it could. And that can happen this time of the year also, as you reflect upon some things that you wished were different. Some things that you, some of which maybe you have no control over, some of which maybe you do. But those that you do, you're rethinking how that can be different in the new year. In that particular case, and it's pertinent to this message because the theme is the same, we had become discouraged that all the things that we thought we were going to do in this new church, and we really focused on you know, personal spirituality, growth of new believers, you know, new people coming to Christ, as any church plant would, um, establishing an identity as a church, and really advancing what we thought was going to be a level of godliness that would just shine the gospel out to others. We realized by that point in our work that many of our believers that we're planting with were very, very young in their faith. And it had taken this church planting endeavor to expose that, to demonstrate that they were quite young. In fact, we were asking them to be leaders when they really were still spiritual babes. And so our response in that year, the following year, as a church leadership team was to just really you know, do this better and, and do that better and change this and let's ratchet this up and are you in the Word and make sure you're reading and studying and read this book. And so we were just constantly dispensing medicine, if you will, to grow. It took about nine months. I think it was a year into that second year. We realized that our people weren't growing the way that we thought they should. It was peculiar because we were telling them the right things to do. But we were telling them the right things to do, divorced from the means of growth. What we were doing was giving them a list of to-dos to add to their life, but not marrying it, not rooting it in the gospel. So even though we were telling husbands to be better husbands and fathers and wives to be better wives and mothers and so on and kids to be obedient and you know, to witness to your coworkers, and they were struggling with that, and they were coming back just kind of 
broken by it. I just can't do it. So the second year and our next new year, we started with a different approach, a more biblical approach, one that I want to share with you today. One that resulted in the fruit that we had hoped to see the first year, where they did become more godly men and women and more zealous for the faith. Let's look at how Paul instructs Titus regarding something very similar with the church he's pastoring in Crete. This is, again, chapter 3. We've already read it, so we won't go back to it. But to set this up and to start picking apart these first few verses, Titus is a, one whom Paul calls a true son or child of a common faith. So he really is, feels very close to Titus. This is like a, like a Timothy to him. In fact, the two uh, would be very similar categories. These pastoral epistles of 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus were written to pastors to encourage them how to shepherd their flock. Paul had left him in Crete after a journey that we don't know about. In fact, it looks like this was a, a later a journey after Acts closes, after Acts 28, where he would have gone back because he does indicate in the letter that he was there and he left Titus there to fix some problems. In fact, he told him, I want you to stay there. I want you to put things in order, appoint elders, and set things right. What they found there was a church that was really kind of squabbling with a lot of dissension. In fact, there were some false teachers there that were propagating a different approach to spirituality than the gospel approach. They were teaching different things that were causing kind of two errors, and this is how we respond to things so often. There was an error on one side that was kind of what the Cretans were known as, sort of gluttonous, lazy people who just sort of flaunted freedom and lived licentious lives. And so they would respond to that with sort of a Judaistic approach to the law and ratchet this up and be holy and do this and do that. And both errors were obscuring the gospel. Paul's solution is the only solution, and that is to preach the true gospel. We think about the two ways we can err in relation to the gospel. It's like I hate to equate it to a slippery slope because you feel like you can fall off one side or the other, but it is slippery because we do slip into it. So on one side of our understanding of the gospel, we can slide off into this sort of, well, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, it doesn't matter what I do. That's licentiousness. That's reckless and godless and rule-free, but it's not biblical. In fact, it takes advantage of grace if one possesses grace to begin with. The other side of that, though, where we try to counteract that, we so often are given to extremes in correction, aren't we? So if I'm, I don't want to equate this too closely to something with weight, but let's just say if I'm 50 pounds overweight, I'm going to lose 100 pounds. I'm going to counteract that drastically, right? I don't know that anybody's really thinking that way this morning about weight, but we, we tend to react in an extreme way. So a reaction to, well, I think this Bible is what's going on in Crete, a reaction to licentiousness is to then ratchet up holiness. I'm not just going to be holy. I'm going to be really holy. I'm going to be more holy than you've ever seen. And, and so we begin this sense of pursuit of holy standards that quickly, if not initially, gravitates into a, a desire to earn grace. God, you're going to be so pleased with me because of what I do. In fact, you're going to look upon the earth and see that I am just the most righteous person you, you see out there. This is more dutiful. It's a strict way of living. It's a very dry way of living, too. It becomes empty. 
I've watched lifestyles. I've watched it in my own life. I'll relate part of that in a moment. But I've watched in other lives this gravitation that bounces back and forth. And sometimes, especially if a personality is given to it, it will swing wildly from licentious living to strict holiness. And you can see this in other religions. You mean, the recently read a biography of a monk who you know, had lived this debaucherous life and then swung wildly to the, the, most, um, the most strict sect of monasticism he could find to try to counteract. Because in our hearts, in our fleshly way, we're always trying to balance scales of some sort. Even in the course of a day, I did this, I need to counteract by doing this. But nowhere in Scripture does it teach to be that way. In fact, it warns against that. Because even if in our minds we are truly balancing any scales of any type, we're really not balancing anything. We're trying to self-justify. We're trying to take upon the work of Christ ourselves. Well, Paul says that both sides of this do one thing. He says it in the first chapter. He says they both profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So licentiousness denies God in the works of licentiousness. Legalism denies God by the work of legalism. And then he concludes, these people who err on these two sides are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So they can't do the good works that he's talking about if they're erring on these two sides. So we want to be those who do the good works, right? We're preparing for a new year that's going to be better than ever. As a church, we want to be better than ever. As individuals and families, better than ever. So we want to be godly. How do we do that? Well, Paul's got the gospel for us. Let's talk about how that's applied. I'm going to talk about three areas briefly. The first are these two types of life. We'll elaborate on how Paul talks about them in chapter 3. Uh, the second thing we're going to talk about is the gospel's power and its work. Because Paul gives a marvelous description of the gospel, one of the best in all scripture in this Titus chapter 3. And then we're going to talk about how to apply the gospel for good works. How does that work? Isn't the gospel just for salvation? How does it work? We're going to talk about that. So first, what are the two types? How do we slide off one way or the other? Well, Paul kind of breaks it down. He said, here's the way you're supposed to live. Titus, tell them to live this way. And he lists some things. Be submissive, be obedient, be ready for good works, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Well, that should immediately invoke a concern if we're honest with ourselves. I don't think we've done that. This is what we're supposed to do, though. These are the evidences of the gospel. And he's saying, Titus, this is what you tell your people to do because this is what people who follow Christ do. This is the way that they act. Well, think through your own life. Submission to authority. Of course, ultimately, that's God's authority. So I automatically can find ways right away that we haven't submitted to that. Obedience. There's certainly ways that we haven't obeyed. Being ready for... Every good word. Now, that's a, an interesting point. We're going to come back to that. But that's, that sense of readiness is something here that seems to be at the heart of what he's talking about that because there's a contrasting list in just a moment. So, ready for every good work. I want to be ready for every good work. Speaking evil of no one. That may not have happened this morning. There may have been someone you've already spoken evil of. Probably someone you're married to or in the same home with so quickly to slip with our tongue into areas of just inappropriate speech. Avoid quarreling. Don't come to our house. 
Avoid quarreling. Quarreling. Wow. Um, some people thrive at quarreling, don't they? Uh, it seems that some just have a propensity to stir it up. But not so with those who follow God. Avoid quarreling. Now it says avoid. It doesn't mean there's a zero mandate. But I think he's referencing some other thoughts that he had in Romans 12 where he says, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. There's some things you have no control over, but as much as it depends upon you, you don't start the quarrel. You don't stir it up. Be gentle. Would you be considered someone whose life is marked with gentleness? That's the work of grace, to be gentle. Perfect courtesy. Well, this is some extreme language. A perfect courtesy toward all people. You know, people get really weird around Christmas, especially as they're getting shot, they're shopping and they're getting things, and especially driving. You know, it's very dangerous to drive in this area. I'm not sure it's any safer to walk, but it's really dangerous to drive. And you watch the way people drive, especially once you get down around Shelbyville Road and some of those areas around the malls. There's not perfect courtesy toward all going on down there in the mall. You get into those tight spaces where everybody's sort of crowded in, there's not perfect courtesy toward all. So how is it in our own life? Perfect courtesy toward all. Well, these are the characteristics of Christ. He would have fulfilled these perfectly. We would have seen this in him without exception. And therefore, they are the nature that we're to take on, the nature that we're growing into. So these are the things that Paul would say. If you're going to make a New Year's resolution... These are a good list to start with. These are an area that you can grow in that Christ will empower you through his Holy Spirit to do. But then he contrasts this with a list that we once were. So for those in the room who consider yourselves saved, this was who you were, but you're going to see some evidences that still linger. For those that may not consider yourself a Christian, you may see some of these things active in your life now. Pray that you would. So what was our pre-converted state, our before-Christ state? Well, there's some contrast here with those things. For the first in the list, he says they're foolish, or they act in a foolish manner. Of course, the Bible defines that as one who uh, says there is no God. So foolishness is, by definition, living out from under the authority. So we have the contrast of the one who lives subordinating to authority and the one who lives not subordinating to authority. And then we have disobedience in the list, contrasted with obedience from the list. If you're following along the text, we're kind of uh, contrasting verse 3 with verse 1. Being led astray. This is, again, sort of the heart of the matter issue. The third one in the first list was about being ready for good works. This one says being led astray. Well, that seems to imply two different countenances, two different places of life. Being ready for something versus being led astray. One seems to have a sense of I'm ready, as opposed to I'm wandering. And I think, again, there's a heart of the matter issue here, but being led astray by what is the key here? What is it that's leading astray? And Paul would say it's the, it is the flesh. It is the, that inner part of man that, that wants to rule over us in sin. Slaves to various passions. There he says it, the fourth one. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, as he qualifies what it is to be led astray. The irony of being in an unsaved state is that we think we are doing it our own way. This is an aside. I recently heard a list of most popular funeral songs. I did it my way was the most popular funeral song played at a funeral. That's ironic, isn't it? 
I did it my way, and now I'm dead. It just seems ironic to me that that would be the song you'd want played at your funeral. I can honestly say, though, that no one died on their own terms. No one did it their way, right? I mean, that's what death is. It overcomes us. And certainly the perspective after death is nothing about my way. I mean, not, not that way. Not in a boastful way. So, the irony is, we think we are our own master, but we're being enslaved. We think we're living our life to the fullest, but we are a slave to passions and pleasures within us that are leading us to death. There's a way that seems right to man, and sin is death. There's a way that we can live this life that we think we are mastering our destiny, and really our destiny is mastering us. And then he gives some very descriptive phrases to contrast with the avoid quarreling and gentleness and perfect courtesy, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Hatred fills the life of those who are apart from Christ, either hatred toward others or from others. I've got a friend from high school that I hadn't seen since high school, but you know how Facebook sets up these virtual relationships and you reconnect, and so on Facebook we reconnected. And everything this, this gentleman posts is just... Hatred. Hatred for people. He's just constantly spewing his hatred for others who he feels like have mistreated him or have crossed him or not understood him correctly. That's such a depiction of the extreme. But you know, sometimes we see the extreme and say, well, I'm not that, so it's not a problem for me. But we can do that in a very different way. We don't always so vocal in our hatred but hatred can sure be stored up here. And it can be done in a very quiet, polite, even sneering, smiled kind of way. And hatefulness can be expressed. Well, I think these two lists really do contrast two foci of the heart. So there's the one side that is ready for good works, and that's what we're going to find out. How do we be ready for good works? Because we want that first list, and there's the other side that is being led around by the flesh. So which is the orientation of the heart? So let's look at that then. The, the, the focus of being ready for good works. Well, Paul has made this very clear in here, how to do this. And he's done it in each chapter, especially chapters 2 and 3. But when he gets here to chapter 3, he begins with this list, seeming to live, you know, kind of like we did in, in our church plant. Here's the list of things you need to do. And what we did, unfortunately, was we stopped after the list. Do this list, don't do this list. And, and that's the way we like to live, because that seems real tangible to us. Okay, I'm gonna, there's the list of things I'm going to do this year. And here's the list of things I'm not going to do this year. But if, if you're honest with yourself, at the end of the year, you'll reflect, and you didn't really do this the way you thought you would, and you did much more of this than you thought you should. And these lists seem to continue to, to, to be a problem. And so Paul starts out with these lists, but he does it with a purpose of pointing us to the, how do you be ready? Titus, here's how you teach them to be ready. Because remember, he has both going on in his church in Crete. He's got both of these things exemplified very clearly. He's got some that are just, they're just, you know, they've given, they're not a desire for standard. 
It's just live life, enjoy it, eat, drink, be merry, and then we die. And then he's got those that are really trying to counteract that by living this standard for holiness. I'm going to be godly. I'm going to, be, I'm going to do all these things just the right way. And, and you think about the way we're prone to this. We can, we can very quickly not only drive ourselves towards holiness in the way we live our lives, but pat ourselves on the back in our accomplishments. One of the things that I got as a child, it was, it was well-meaning, but it really, until, I didn't realize it until years later what this did to me. But I got, for Sunday school, I got a, a, a checklist to memorize verses for Sunday school. That's a good thing. It's a reminder. Teacher gave it to me, well-meaning and intentioned. And it served a good purpose because I memorized all the verses and checked off the whole list. So there's nothing wrong with the checklist, except that what I began to develop was checklist spirituality. You know when you're doing like a, a devotional and you, you, you realize you missed two or three days, and so you go back and you read those two or three days to catch up, so you're caught up, so you can check off the list? That kind of Christianity, that kind of spirituality... Now, I'm not, again, saying there's anything inherently wrong with that, but our heart's approach to that can be to earn righteousness by doing that. Our heart's approach with a checklist can be, see see how godly I am? And we just glory in that. Now, it sounds really pathetic as I tell you about my checklist when I was a child for Scripture. That, really? You were really proud of that? It doesn't take much to please you, does it? No, not really. Not for myself. I'm my, I'm my own biggest fan. And so I'll just cheer myself on all the way. That's the problem, right? So the checklist approach to spirituality, for me, is just a way of heaping up accolades for myself. It has nothing to do, really, in my heart for what I would have wanted God to do in me. So this is where Paul then drives home the gospel. Now, if... This is important that you see this because this will tell you how you view the gospel because at this point in the text, it would look for some that this seems to be out of place, okay? No, we did that already in chapter 2 and chapter 1. I'm already saved. I don't need the gospel again. I need the checklist that you gave me at the beginning of chapter 3. That's the problem with that approach. We don't need the checklist absent from the gospel, because the checklist will push us right into a works-based Christianity. And it'll be either legalist, because I'm checking it off and smiling, or licentious, because I can't keep up, and I'm, I, if I can't keep up, then why does it matter? I'll just go do whatever I want to do. And we'll fall off one side or the other of what the gospel's intent was. So he brings us to this beautiful depiction of the gospel. And the, the way he portrays it is so vivid. Look at verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Now this is on the heels of that bad list. What we once were. When the goodness and the kindness Oh, those are beautiful words. When the goodness and the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. 
And then he clarifies. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. It wasn't what you were doing that was savable, if you will. It wasn't because you had a certain righteousness inherent to you that he saved you. You know, you're a better person than you are, so I'll save you. That's not the way he does it. In fact, our own sense of righteousness is just filthy rags. But according to his own mercy, he says. He doesn't do it because of who you are. He does it in spite of who you are. Mercy. Mercy is giving what we don't deserve, right? It's not giving what we do deserve. Mercy is treating someone different than they have earned. He doesn't do it because of our works of righteousness. He does it because of his mercy. Now, this is where we want to hit the reset button for a new year. Because the tendency in the end of December 2013 is to reflect upon a year that we'd like to forget in some aspects, feel condemned if we reflect upon it, and just move on. But the appropriate way to reflect upon failure, if you will, upon the negative is to reflect upon it from the gospel. That he was kind to us and good to us because of mercy. And where he was good to us, it was not because of our sense of righteousness. In fact, it may have been in spite of that. And then he not only did that, but then he poured out the Holy Spirit upon us. This is at salvation, obviously with a washing of regeneration and renewal. Now, those are New Year words, aren't they? Regeneration and renewal. Re, I want re stuff. Renewed, regenerated, refunded, replenished. It's do-over words, do-over language. The renewal, the regeneration. So from the gospel then, He then tells us we have these things. This is 6 and 7. We have this Holy Spirit who's come, washing of regeneration, the renewal, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So there's three things there that I think are important to take into our new year understanding. The first is this justification, justified by his grace. So we have uh, this, well, let's go back. Regeneration, we already talked about. That's the sort of the, the newness. So we have a, a new beginning. Like uh, Corinthians. Uh, you're not old. The old's gone. The new has come. In Christ, we're a new creature. And so there's a newness that we can approach a new year with. I'm not the same person that I was before Christ. And he's always about renewing things in me. I'm being made new daily. Things are coming new daily. And in the new year, new things will be done because of his work in me. But then there's also a new standing. This is that conversion. This is a a permanent standing that with justification and, and messages, entire messages should be preached on justification. They have been in this pulpit. They will continue to be. That what... I deserved, was taken by Christ, the punishment for sin, 
what he earned and his righteousness was imputed to me. The great exchange. My penalty, his reward, simply. Now that's a good way to start a new year. Why? Why would he be so good to us? And if he has been that good to us, then will he not also then freely give us all things? Will he not also then finish this good work he's begun? Yes. That's what scripture says in both cases. So new beginning, regeneration. New standing, justification. New hope. With salvation, with the gospel, there's a new orientation that points towards a future day that's outside of this life. And it points us to a day when he will welcome us home. And the sicknesses that you're feeling right now, they'll be done. Gone forever. The burden of sin that we have grown so accustomed to, we don't always notice, will be done. It'll be removed completely. The trials and travails and the sense of loss in this life, renewed completely. It'll be done. That'll be removed. And his call to us then is to live this life in light of that one. Don't live this life in light of next Christmas. Don't live this light even in light of January 1st for a new start. Live this light in light of the day that you will stand before him and see him as he truly is. Now that will change the way you live 2014 if you live your days for that day when you stand before him. Which brings us to the last point. Applying the gospel and preparation for good works. I'll never forget the night that I discovered I was a legalist. I had been collecting checklists for years. I had devotions stacked up where I'd written on every page to remind myself how good a Christian I was. My sense of conversion as a child was from a, a, a family that raised me in the church and that I just moved very naturally from unsaved to saved. There was little understanding on my part that I had much to be saved from. As I would go through my teen years, I was an abnormal teen from the teen perspective. I relatively well behaved, avoided most of the pitfalls that teen years tend to bring, moved on into preparation for ministry, seminary, the good son, right? in contrast with my evil brother who's not here to defend himself. <laughs> He's also in the ministry in Georgia. And so he, um, from, from, a, from a sense of walking with Christ, it just seemed seamless and natural, and there was, there was just, you know, I used to say, and, and this, this is reflecting, I didn't say it at the time, but this is the way I was living, you know, God got a pretty good deal with me. That's really foolish to say that, isn't it? But that's what I was really kind of living like. I I didn't didn't really have much to be saved from. Well, that's just a lie. And that's a danger to growing up in the church if you don't understand the gospel well. So there was a conference uh, at New Year's, ironically, uh, in in Baltimore that Mary and I attended. And uh, one of the speakers was speaking about legalism detecting legalism or something like that. 
I was supposed to lead a small group after this. It was a college conference, so it was for college students, and so I had been volunteered to lead this group along with several others that were doing small group discussions after the message. And so my thoughts were typically kind of thinking, what am I going to do with this group of people? I don't know, and how am I going to lead this this small group? And, and then the message just really distracted me from those thoughts as I began to realize what he was describing about a legalist was the way I had lived my entire Christian life. And it became very burdensome to me through the message that I had been living my life in my sense of self-atonement, self-justification, as if, as if I was earning salvation. Which is why I had little gratefulness for what Christ had done. I could sing the songs and certainly speak the language, and I believe I was truly converted. I don't believe that I needed to be saved that night, but I do believe clearly that he showed something about my conversion that I had not understood. Something that I would hope that you would understand today if you need that understanding to be brought. That I was trying to earn favor when favor had already been given. And I wasn't supposed to do my good works toward earning favor, but from earned favor by Christ. That's why the gospel is so important to understand correctly. Because if you only view it as a door that gets you in to the kingdom, you will then live within the kingdom like you're the Savior. But if you view it as the foundation upon which you live and build a Christian life, you'll return to it daily to remind yourself of what you were and what he's made you to be. And from there, you'll do good works. Any other place, you'll be unfit for good works. In just a moment... Robert's going to come and stand here at the front and uh, receive anyone who would want to come to be prayed for. I just want to leave you with these thoughts and a prayer. As you consider your new year, rather than striving to grow in the characteristics of a Christian toward good works, which will inevitably fail in 2014, and will inevitably affect your love for God because you will think He has let you down. Remind yourself that what your life should be remind yourself what your life should be characterized by, like a list like this. And why? Because of the work Christ has done in you. Remember what you once were and what you've been saved from. then rehearse the gospel's power of transformation. Rehearse what the gospel has done in your life. Remind yourself every day, Jesus did this for me, that I might live for him. Remind yourself and walk in the spirit of renewal. Walk in these good works. But walk walk in these good works from the gospel, not toward it. What you don't need to do is try harder. Now hear me correctly. I'm not saying there isn't effort involved. Because it isn't let go and let God either. What you don't need to do is try harder. 
What you need to do is believe the gospel more deeply, that it does more than you thought it did. And it is at work today. Let's pray.